Well, I'm glad I can be here. I'll let the, let the kicking begin, I guess. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Uh, I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week for the release of The War for the Planet of the Apes, we are taking a look at director Matt Reeves' earlier work, Let Me In, uh, and we're taking a look at the psychological theme of inadequacy. And to talk about inadequacy, I have uh, Chris Maynard from the following films podcast. So welcome back. You know, I'm just wondering, was it specifically the movie or was it just the theme of inadequacy that brought me on the <laughs> Man, show this week? Chris, sometimes things just line up just <laughs> right. <laughs> because as you know, I don't come up with these themes until I watch or rewatch the movie. And I had you coming on here because a lot of it because it's a, you know, a highly thought of horror movie. And like, no matter no matter how you deprecate yourself when I say this, you are my horror expert on the show. So I always kind of bring you back on. <laughs> So it just, you know, it just worked out that way. So I'm pretty happy with that. Well, uh, I'm glad I can be here. I will let the, let the kicking begin, I guess. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so before we let the kicking begin, why don't you tell people about your podcast and where they can hear it? Uh, you can find it anywhere you're listening to this podcast. It's Following Films. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, following underscore films. Go to followingfilms.com. Just search it and you'll find it. All right. Sounds good. So before we get into the psychology of inadequacy, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations? You know, the first thing I thought of, because um, pretty much any film is going to have some degree of inadequacy as a theme. So you could really look at, you know, any movie and find that as a central part of it, I think. Um, and so I tried to get two things that are very different from one another to sort of underline that point. And one of the first ones I thought of was some kind of wonderful. Uh, one of my favorite John Hughes films not directed by John Hughes <laughs> and it has uh, Eric Stoltz, Leah Thompson and Mary Stuart Masterson if I remember correctly um, right. just going off the top of my head there mm -hmm. and it's you know Eric Stoltz is a mechanic who ends up on this date with Leah Thompson the girl from the right side of the tracks that he doesn't belong with and it's really about him kind of realizing that he does deserve to be with a woman like her and in fact he deserves to be with a woman you know, that's better suited for him that's been there the whole time. So one of my right. favorite 80s kind of uh, comedies like that. So is it just your goal to bring up Leah Thompson on every episode that, that you show up here? Is that? Is... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Enough. Maybe you'll <laughs> and, uh, talk to her a third time. Maybe that'll. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll just keep throwing breadcrumbs and see what happens. Right? <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, that's a movie. Man, I don't think I have seen that in at least a decade. Uh, like I know the title, and like as you're like rattling off the the cast, I was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that movie. So I, gotta, I think I'm gonna have to rewatch that. Um, a, and it'll go on the list. For Masterson sure. has that super cute tomboy haircut. Plays drums in it. I had yeah. a big old crush on her when I was you know 13 years old. Nice. Nice. And uh, and I had initially thought of when I was thinking of that was in that same vein was some uh, not some kind of wonderful. I'm sorry. It was uh, say anything was kind of and I mm -hmm. felt like that was a little mm -hmm. bit too obvious, but sort of the same thing was some kind of wonderful. Then I wanted to go something that probably pairs a little bit better uh, thematically with tonight's film. And that was the talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, yeah. Where right. it were. I mean, that's just really Matt Damon not feeling like he's 
a part of society that's higher. You know, he's again sort of from the lower class and he wants to be elevated and he feels like he can lie his way into it and literally murder his way into it. And so if you haven't seen it and you're listening to a show like this, stop this right now and watch go out it. and watch. Yeah, because yeah. it's a really great film that I, I was really well received at the time, but I don't hear people bring it up very often now. And I, I still think it's just a fantastic film. Yeah. It's interesting when I, when I hear this movie brought up like, you know, on, on podcasts like this one, you, it's, there's almost this like note of derision about it. And I think when we get distance from a movie like that, I think sometimes that's, that's our inclination is to kind of talk shit about it, but that is a great, great film and has like three or four just fantastic performances i mean whether you're oh, philip seymour hoffman yeah, kills it exactly yeah i mean he as he does in everything kind of steals the movie at certain points but it's also one of matt damon's best performances like i think he's genuinely fantastic there and there's it's kate blanchett in that one too if i'm remembering right like yes. it's just yep. yeah like through and through just a fantastic film and one that one that i feel especially like younger listeners like may not have seen because it just kind of like they were too young to watch it then and should definitely be checked out. Cause that is, that is just a great, great movie. So thank you for those, those recommendations. Definitely two very different, uh, different recommendations there. I like that. All right. So um, we are going to take a quick break and then I'll talk about inadequacy and then we'll bring Chris back to talk about let me in. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right so it's time for the psychological section so today we're talking about inadequacy i think something we all know a little something about there's always something that we're going to feel inadequate or inferior about and if you start looking this up psychologically you'll see things like inferiority complexes so what that is is a lack of self self-worth and when we have doubts about ourselves and we're feeling like we don't quite measure up to whatever standards, those can be personal standards, societal standards, uh, romantic standards set by your partner, familial standards, whatever it is. And usually it's something we're not even really aware of. It's below the level of consciousness. And a lot of people think it actually drives people to overcompensate, which can result in one of two things, either achievement above and beyond what you think you'd be able to do or a social behavior. And usually it comes if you, if you try really hard and you overcompensate and you still fail, then you feel even worse about it. Now in modern times, they tend to use terminology like a lack of covert self-esteem. So kind of under the radar self-esteem. And they think it's developed through a combination of personal experiences and genetic personality characteristics. So some of it is about what you experience, and some of it is about what you were born with. So if you go and look back into a psychologist named Alfred Adler, he made a distinction between primary and secondary feelings of inferiority. Now, if you have a primary inferiority complex, it's rooted in the young child's original experience of helplessness, dependency, and weakness, which every young, young child has because they are weak, helpless, and dependent. 
But then it gets intensified when you compare yourself to siblings, friends, romantic partners, and other adults in your life. Now, on the other hand, a secondary inferiority feeling, it relates relates to our experience of being unable to reach a fictional final goal of what he would call subjective security and success. And this is the overcompensation for these feelings of inferiority. Now, what's important is the person's perceived distance from that goal. And if it's far enough away, it will lead to feelings of depression And then that can prompt the recall of the original feeling of inferiority. So this this kind of grouping of inferiority feelings all put together can be really overwhelming. And this reassuring goal that you're trying to reach has been invented to relieve that original feeling of inferiority. So it not only causes that secondary feeling, but if you don't reach it, you kind of get both. You get both at the same time. So if you succeed in getting to that goal, that reassuring goal, as I mentioned, then you're going to be doing great. But if you don't reach it, you kind of get this double whammy of feeling inadequate. So the idea of inferiority or this complex first kind of started, as a lot of things did, with Sigmund Freud's works and with the work of his colleague, Carl Jung. And Alfred Adler, who I just mentioned, he said that many of these symptoms, of these bad symptoms that you get, he called neurolytic symptoms, can be traced to overcompensation for this feeling of inferiority. Now, the use of the term complex is used to denote kind of this group of of emotional ideas. So you can kind of put them all in one place. Now, the opposite of an inferiority complex is a superiority complex. And it's a defense mechanism that is a way to conceal these feelings of inferiority. Now, when it comes to causes... This complex tends to occur when feelings of inferiority are intensified because of either failure, not reaching that goal, or discouragement, especially from adults when you're a young child. People who are at risk for developing this complex will include a bunch of groups. People who show signs of low self-esteem or self-worth, people in low socioeconomic statuses, or people who have a history of depression. Kids who were raised in households where they were criticized all the time or did not live up to parents' high standards also can develop this inferiority complex. And this makes sense based on what we just talked about, that goal that they can never meet. But a lot of times there's warning signs for people who are more prone to developing this complex. One example is a person who is prone to attention and approval-seeking behaviors tends to be more susceptible. Also, children raised in families where everything is done for them and have this kind of pampered lifestyle. So it's the opposite of of the other group where they're they're constantly being criticized. If you're given everything, once you're out of that lifestyle, which will happen eventually, then you're not going to be able to meet goals that you end up setting for yourself and you're going to feel inferior. Now, I mentioned Adler earlier, and he stated that everyone has a feeling of inferiority. But the feeling of inferiority is not a disease. It is rather a stimulant to healthy, normal striving and development. It becomes a pathological condition only when the sense of intimacy overwhelms the individual and far from stimulating him to useful activity, makes him depressed and incapable of development. And this is something we talked about on a lot of different episodes, that there are no experiences, no emotions that are bad or evil. It's it's the amount. It's the intensity. So feeling inferior is fine. It actually motivates us to be better. But if all you feel is that inferiority and it overwhelms you, then you're not going to be able to perform. 
Speaking of that, there's something in the inferiority complex literature called performance impact. So when someone has this complex, it can impact the performance of the person as well as affecting their self-esteem. So this is not only internal, but external as well. These unconscious psychological processes tend to disrupt students' cognitive learning and and these negatively charged memory associations that you have derails the learning process completely. One study found that math can become associated with a psychological inferiority complex, low motivation and low self-esteem, as well as feeling unsafe or anxious. So in the mental health population, this characteristic is seen a lot in certain disorders like schizophrenia, personality disorders, and mood disorders. One psychologist, Moritz, found that people suffering from paranoid schizophrenia tended to use their delusions as a defense mechanism against low self-esteem. So it's the idea we think of people who are having delusions and we have this picture, especially with paranoid schizophrenia, that it's all negative, that the, the voices are telling them to do bad things. Sometimes the voices and the visions are actually building them up and telling them good things. All right, so we're going to take a look at an article. This article is from Elger and Arlette in 2002, and they're looking at the connection between perceived social in- inadequacy and depressed mood in adolescence, which is kind of perfect for this movie because we are looking at adolescence mainly when we're talking about inadequacy in Let Me In. So one thing we know is that social and emotional functioning for adolescents are linked. A lot of studies of community adolescents have found that depressive symptoms are positively correlated with difficulties in social functioning. So the more trouble you have functioning with your friend group, with your peer group, the more depressive symptoms that you're going to have. It's also correlated with intense conflict situations and feelings of social inadequacy. And there's been longitudinal studies that have found that adolescents who encounter more conflict, like bullying, are at much higher risk of emotional distress than low-conflict adolescents. And depressed adolescents will encounter more frequent and difficult conflict situations than those who are not depressed. So all these things are linked together. But this study wanted to look at the long-term association between the child's perceived social inadequacy and depressive symptoms using self-report measures that were administered twice over a four-month time span. So this group had about 225 kids that they were talking to, about half and half boys and girls. And they gave them a couple measures, the Children's Depression Inventory. Uh, which is kind of the most most widely used test for childhood depression, and then something called the Checklist of Adolescent Problem Situations, which is called the CAPS. And how they did this is they gave the depression inventory in the CAPS in classroom settings during regular class time. So that way they weren't thinking like, oh, I'm being tested, I have to go to a different room. It's going to be as normal as it can be. So when they got the results, they did find that this study was the first one ever to report a correlation between the depression inventory and the CAPS. So the results showed that in this community, the adolescents, perceived social inadequacy is associated with depressed mood. So this is, of course, consistent with those previous studies that have shown that depressed kids encounter more conflict than non-depressed kids. The only bad thing, really, in this is they found that although these scores on the self-report instruments were highly correlated, it's still not clear whether depressed mood is associated with both perceived social inadequacy and actual difficulties in social functioning. So there's a difference between how the kids see themselves and how they're actually functioning. So the CAPS was found to be a highly reliable measure of social inadequacy over four months and was found to correlate highly with the depression inventory. So although the depression inventory does assess symptoms related to social functioning, 
supplemental things like the CAPS can be really helpful in these clinical contexts because they identify the domains in which the adolescents feel they experience the most difficulty. So it's one thing to know like, oh, I'm depressed, I'm having trouble socially, but it's another thing to actually break it down like these are the areas in which you are having difficulty. So it got me thinking as I read this article about the movie and this kind of perceived difficulty socially. And I think the movie makes it painfully, literally painfully obvious that our main character of Owen does have a lot of social issues. He he doesn't have any friends until the other main character comes in. Uh, he doesn't have a great relationship with his mom and his dad is out of the picture and he gets bullied at school a lot. But it kind of makes me wonder, like, did they just move to this area? Did he have friends when he first started there? Like what happened that he would be so alone? Because even even kids usually that have trouble in school and have trouble making friends usually have one or two people they can depend on. It looks like Owen only has a vampire to depend on and she comes in pretty late in the game. So this this kid definitely this Owen does definitely does spend a lot of time alone and have a lot of difficulty which if he were a real boy, would lead to, certainly lead to depression, would lead to more conflict, not just from being bullied, but he might start lashing out himself. So there's a lot that this kind of inadequacy, especially socially, can really point to problems coming in the future. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back and bring Chris Maynard of Following Films back to talk about both Let Me In and a little bit on the movie it was based on, just the Swedish film Let the Right One In. Hey, people. My name is Peter, and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old, and what that means is... I may review movies I grew up watching, or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. All right, so uh, so we're back to talk about Let Me In. So you know, as usual, we'll kind of talk about our history with these movies, but I also have kind of an extra question for you, if you don't mind, because this is kind of a very direct remake of Let the Right One In, um, mm -hmm. like to the point that if you start looking up the differences between these two movies, there are very few. <laughs> it is almost, I mean, it's almost like Gus Van Sant psycho level of shot for shot remake. Uh, so one, what's your history with this movie? And two, what do you think about English language remakes like this, like I know, so there's been news of like, you know, there's a remake of Tony Erdman coming out that's just an English language version of a German film. And this is kind of, you know, the same kind of thing. And what do you, what do you think about that kind of in general? Like, for me, I'm a little bit torn on it because I like the fact that American audiences are getting to see a good story. But then the the foreign language film, the original film sometimes gets kind of swept under the rug and we only look at the English language version. Um, I, I kind of disagree on that okay. um, with the idea that I think a lot of times it draws more attention to the foreign film. And so there's just certain audiences that will go see foreign films. And then once there's an American right. remake, that might actually draw a little bit more attention to it. Mm -hmm. There will be – hopefully there's a smart studio head that will you know put out a better Blu-ray of it or whatever that is. Maybe hopefully. it will get a, a yeah. re release. Um, so if it's something that you really care about, you know, 
the original film doesn't go anywhere. So I personally don't give a shit about it. A lot of times I'm just not interested in them because if it's something that I really enjoyed, I don't see the point in going and revisiting it. But then again, um, something like let me in, it shows how you can do something that is very similar, um, in its execution and still retains the quality. And I think that has to do with performances mainly. And that's mm-hmm. the main difference here is the the quality of acting is fine and let the right one in, but there's something I think honestly in let me in that's a little bit more elevated. Okay. Um, but I give the, if it, you know, you're kind of doing a horse race out of it, I guess, you know, the one that got there first kind of gets <laughs> the credit, but then sure. again, this is based on a book. So, right. Yeah. Where do you draw the line? Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. So, so what is your history with this? Did you see, let the right one in first? Did you see this one first? Okay. So you saw them in the kind of the order that they were first presented in. So do you feel like, how do you feel like that affected your viewing of let me in or did it, or were you able to kind of see it with new eyes? It had been a couple years in between uh, viewings, so it was something where by the time it was being remade, I know the remake was pretty quick, the turnaround on these two, but it had yeah. been about, I think, two years or so since I had seen them. So it wasn't fresh on my mind kind of doing a back-to-back viewing, so right. I felt okay about it. I was curious what the Cloverfield Guide was going to do um, <laughs> with this material. Um and I just honestly kind of thought there could there were a couple areas where it could be more interesting, and I he killed it. I think this is a fantastic remake, and it shows what a talented filmmaker can do. And it's one of those things that's a little bit disappointing for the trajectory that his career has taken at this point. Mm-hmm. Where I wish he was doing something original because now he his it's odd that the only non-existing IP that he's worked with at this point is Cloverfield. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's doing, you know, Planet of the Apes and then uh, I guess he's signed Batman. on to do Batman. Like, yeah. you know, so uh, maybe he's uh, he's really good at taking properties that have already been produced and coming up with something new. I guess I guess we'll find out um, for me. Like, this is a movie that, of course, like as the movie came out, I had heard about it and everyone kind of talked about how great it was, whether you had seen the original or not. And it just kind of missed it. And I like to use my podcast as a reason to finally watch all these movies <laughs> that have kind of been on these lists of like, Oh, I really should watch that. I mean, just, uh, last week we did uh, lost in translation, which is again, a movie I'd sure. never seen, which is ridiculous that I had never seen that movie. Um, so this is another one of those that this was a first time watch for me. And I was, was really taken aback by this movie i was shocked at how good this was it's it's rare i think it's rare and a lot of this is direction like it takes i think it takes some it takes some strong directing to have a movie that takes its time and this movie really does because what i'd heard about this movie is it's a vampire movie and yeah i mean it kind of is but it's really it's also a movie it's a movie about romance like young romance it's a movie about growing up it's it's a movie about you know internal strength and making these decisions that are long lasting throughout your life i mean there's a lot going on here and i was i was really impressed at how deftly uh reeves kind of handled all these different strands i agree and it's um the way that he took on the material was he saw it as a coming of age story yeah. where the, and, and that's what this is. It's really about that sort of period between 12 and 13, 14 kind of area where you first start, you know, growing into yourself, you have your first sort of sexual awakening. And one of the things mm-hmm. I like about this film that I really love about it um, is the Abby character 
and there's a slightly different take here, I feel, than the original, where it feels like she's actually stuck in that maturity level. I don't see her as a character that's actually grown up out of that time period, that she's perpetually stuck in this mid-adolescence growing into young womanhood period, um, which is something you don't normally see in this. You see kind of the interview with the vampire take where you have this, you know, well, well, this is, you know, this is a 250 year old woman just trapped in the body of an eight year old. Right. So, but she's trapped in this emotional cycle, which I thought was a really interesting take on it. Yeah. I mean, there's even a line in the script where she says, you know, basically like I'm 12 years old, but I've been 12 years old for a very long time. And I thought like, wow, what an interesting way to put that because Mm -hmm. it would be really easy for this to get inappropriate really quickly. This like 250 year old woman woman you know with this 12 year old boy but just by having that line and having that performance i think it makes everything just a little bit more okay and makes us buy in to that relationship which you really need and the other relationship also with her and richard jenkins the uh quote-unquote father character yeah. here, um which is something that the way they initially set up that character and how it ends up playing out despite him doing, he does some pretty dark stuff here. I mm-hmm. think by the time you sort of understand the character, you have empathy for him. And yes, he sits up, he just every performance here, it's kind of one of those things where I think you can go back to this film in 20 years and go, Oh, there was the kind of next generation of, <laughs> you know, actors for, you know, cause I, I assume that, you know, Chloe Moretz and, um, Cody McPhee are going to be around for a long time. Cause they, yeah. and, uh, the bully, I can't remember his name offhand. The, um, yeah. Dylan Minnette. There you go. Yeah, he, he's wonderful. And he's done some really interesting work. Yeah, and, and this is such a different I mean, we'll get into that later, of course, but it's sure. such a different role for him because he's usually kind of the all American boy. He's usually <laughs> the protagonist. So to see yeah. him as this bully is definitely very different. One thing I noticed, I, I really love the opening of this movie. Um, cause kind of the opening shot is just kind of like, you know, snow falling over the land and you're not really sure what's going on. And it slowly zooms in to this, to this car kind of speeding down the road. And I love the fact that it goes from that sense of calm to that sense of panic, just in a visual shot. Like you don't really need to know what's happening to feel the emotion that, that Reeves wants you to feel. Well, I think he was, uh, definitely playing with the shining in that oh, opening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a and little just the, yeah <laughs> and it's uh the score also is evocative of that and i think it's uh the opening of the film yeah it's um a really powerful way to start it and it's one of those things where i'm not sure if we see work like this in reeves other films uh, mm-hmm. because that was one of the things that really caught me about this there's several shots in this movie that are just incredibly, incredibly inventive. Mm-hmm. And how I don't, how familiar are you with the uh, Apes movies? Uh, very. <laughs> so is there stuff like that in this, in those movies? Because I think of that opening shot and the shot where Richard Jenkins' uh, car is sideswiped. There's a yeah, shot oh, later in the film. Yeah. And that shot is just something that's one of those ones that I've gone back and watched several times trying to figure out exactly how they pulled that off. Yeah, I've, I I mean, that's we'll definitely talk about that shot because that is something that really stands out. It's, I mean, it may be one of my favorite shots out of all the movies we've covered on this podcast. I was just like, holy shit. Like, how <laughs> yeah. did you how how did you do this on a shoestring budget? Like, this is incredible. I don't think he's ever done anything that's really even 
come close as far as the inventiveness. I really enjoy the Apes movies, but in in a lot of ways, the way they're shot is very straightforward and meant mm-hmm. for you know kind of mass consumption, you know, for for better okay. or worse. Um, and I was also thinking throughout this whole movie, I think he probably just had a lot more freedom to be inventive in a movie like this. There's not there's not the amount of pressure that there is in a Batman franchise or an Apes franchise. In this whole movie, it. I'm trying to put it into words, but the whole movie, you feel like you're looking around the corner. Like every, every shot, there's not a lot of shots in this that are just like straight on to your two characters. It's always from like a really odd angle and, and makes you kind of lean in your seat a little bit and try and figure out what's going to happen next, which is perfect for this kind of gothic vampire coming of age story. And there's, there's this, there's this scene later in the, in the alleyway where, you know, yeah. our vampire actually kills someone. And the way that is shot is really smart because they probably didn't have the money for these like close ups of this transformation. And I really love the way that was handled. And just throughout this movie, there's really not a lot of missteps as far as the way the film is shot. Well, I think one of the smart things they do here is the, there is plenty of violence in the film, but it's almost the bullying sequences are more yes. horrific than anything else here. Those are the ones that really kind of have the impact on it. There's the actual, the moments of real violence are shocking, but they're very fleeting. You don't really, you're not that emotionally invested. It's kind of just, okay, this is what needs to happen here in this moment. But the, when you see these moments of bullying, it's just really effective. And I think mm-hmm. that this, the real centerpiece of this is the acting and the performances here. And that's something that Reeves clearly has a, really a gift for working with actors because the performances that he gets out of these young kids, these young actors is just remarkable. And that's so rare. I mean, like to get, especially if you have a film with, in this case, three very important young roles, like you can't have, you can't have this movie work and have one of those actors not, not really bring it for the, for these sequences. And they all really do. Um, So, and that's, and that's something that not every director has that gift. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is one of my favorite shots in this movie is not the first appearance, uh, of Chloe Grace Moretz, but her first sequence with, uh, with our other protagonist, where she just kind of appears behind him, uh, Mm. kind of, you know, standing above him. And I Mm. love that sequence because the way that that is set up, I think we're not really sure what to think of our main character at that point. You know, he's, you know, stabbing, stabbing a tree with a knife and he's, you know, he's a little, it seems a little, <laughs> a little off and you're a little alarmed by him and her presence immediately disarms him. And we're, we're not scared of him anymore because she is so kind of above this and weirdly intimidating through her silence. And I just love the way that, that that shot is kind of presented and introducing her character. Well, I think it's something they it goes a long way with allowing the protagonist of our film to have these dark thoughts that mm-hmm. he's not a perfect child. He's not this just utter victim that I mean, he's certainly a victim here, but he does have this very dark side. Yeah. And so and it allows the idea that he's going down this path. It feels very natural and organic and you completely buy into it um, why he would be okay with some of these ideas, but it is right. completely, I, I think he is an innocent and right. it's, you know, so it's something where he has this path that he, you know, kind of needs to act out, but he doesn't really have any way of doing it. And in fact, just being with her gives him the strength to stand up for himself eventually. And it's just a great, it's really smart to give the audience 
sort of that level of trust, you know, that we're not that we're still willing to follow this guy that as you were kind of alluding to that he's just creepy as fuck in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Like, what the hell's wrong with this kid? We're watching kind of, you know, young Michael Myers. Yeah, I did you know, have that, you know, he's got the mask on. Like mm-hmm. it's just like, um what like I watched this movie again for the first time and I was just like, what did I get myself into? This is not what <laughs> this is not what I was expecting. Like, but I think I think the movie handles it very well and it's it takes some guts to start a movie like that, to start your protagonist out like that, for you to feel like, I don't know if I can trust this kid. But then by like 20 minutes into the movie, you're completely on his side because you start to see what's going on in the school, what's going on in his home. Yeah. And you're like, oh, OK, I, I get this now. Um, and, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and they set up uh, the Abby character, Chloe's character in the same way, right. where you don't really understand the nature of the relationship with her and the father, what we assume is her father. Um, and it feels like there's this bizarre sexual undertone to it that's very off-putting. Yep. Um, but as it goes on and it kind of reveals itself, it's actually sweet Yep. Um, in this very bizarre um, way. I think that there is a tenderness to this film. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I also kind of wish going into this that I hadn't known it was a vampire movie. I wish yeah. I would have got it. Like if you if you can recommend this to your friends, if you've seen it, just don't tell them anything. Just say there's this great movie called Let Me In, watch it. And I think it, it's it's even more affecting. Like it was still affecting, but definitely I think it takes something away when you kind of know, you know the background, at least a little bit of this character. But it's, I think that's the idea is you're supposed to know that with the titles here. You know, let the right one in. That's kind of the or let me in is the vampire kind of lore. The idea that she can't come in without permission. That's true. And so I I think that that's the idea is to get people with those preconceived notions of what a vampire film is supposed to be. And so we come in with this idea, and then it kind of you know pulls the rug out from underneath all of those ideas. So I think it's a good idea to go Hmm. in with those expectations and just have that removed. So if you don't know that it's that, you'll be surprised that it's a vampire film. But then it doesn't have – you know you've kind of gone into it expecting and thinking that it's something else and then – it turns out it's a vampire film, but then it's not the kind of vampire film you would expect. So <laughs> there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, that could be a lot. <laughs> yes, I also really like the last thing I want to bring up in direction. I really like the decision to have these first person shots, um, which we figure out later is Richard Jenkins' character. You know, because we can't see his face because it's doused in acid at that point. But like seeing everything through his point of view in the beginning of the film, it like gives this air of mystery. We're not sure what's happening what's going on who this emma person is and then that shot of him as he's fallen out the window and you just see the kind of blood splatter in the snow is just like aesthetically a really pretty thing to look at and i was just like from the start of this movie i was just like oh my god this is this is stunning like i can't wait to see what happens next yeah no it's it's um it's one of those movies that you could watch with the sound off and it's not a dialogue heavy film anyway and i think you could kind of get the bigger you know sort of plot movement of the film just by watching it and it's definitely a visual story here and it's something that it's highly effective and that's just the other kind of disappointing thing about uh mr reeves i mean he everybody deserves to send their kids to college but damn i'd love to see him doing something smaller that he could really you know kind of exercise these muscles again because i don't i hope that they don't uh you know atrophy from making uh (laughs) you know kind of summer blockbusters (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll definitely see. So let's let's move to the acting, which we've already talked a little bit about. The thing that kind of 
I was really surprised by was not only that Chloe Grace Moretz and Cody Smith McPhee are are good here. Um, and granted, I've seen especially Cody Smith McPhee, you know, do do things a little bit later in his career, like Slow West. He was also really good in that. Yeah. So I'm not super surprised it's a good performance. But what did surprise me is the chemistry between these two young actors. Like, honestly, like Richard Jenkins is great. The sequences at school are great. But like, I could just watch these two together share the screen and be completely entertained. Like, I think they're really good together and they play off each other really, really well. And that's the key to the movie. If you don't buy into that relationship, it's just not going to work. And there's moments that I think they allow it to go past where um, the reaction was natural. And so um, in when they have their first kiss um, afterwards, you know, Cody, he smiles and it's because he wasn't expecting that to happen. And I guess uh, Dan Reeves said to just, you know, in this moment, just go in and kiss him. You know, he knew that it was going to happen, but he wasn't expecting it on that take. Right. So he has this very dry reaction to it. And then you see him smile and the smile is legitimate. Right. You know, it kind of it kind of reminded me of that um, in Almost Famous, the kind of where he says the, you know, ask me again, whatever, right. you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of moment because they're just that. And he leaves those extra beats in the film and it gives them actually playing off each other. And you can see them just having this, I don't know, they, they feel so lived in and natural. And mm-hmm. I kind of, I would love to see these two in another film together. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised somebody hasn't jumped on that because of how well they work together. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Also, there was one moment in particular that I was just, I really loved from Chloe Grace Moretz. There's, there's a scene where, you know, he kind of takes her out on their little, you know, innocent date and, you know, <laughs> offers to buy her anything she wants out of out of this, you know, gigantic store of candy. And that sadness on her face and in her voice when she has to say no. When when we know, we're we're kind of aware that the reason she can't is because of what she is and she's not right. going to be able to do this. But just this pure like regret and sadness that comes across and then her decision to do it anyway because she just desperately, I think, for that moment just wants to be a little bit normal. She wants to be a normal yeah. 12-year-old girl on a date with a 12-year-old boy and have some – have some fucking candy. Like that's, that's all she wants, you know? And of course she pays for that physically, but I really love that moment from her. And there's that extra that the scene there where he's staring at the candy and she's just staring at him. And it's just, it just says everything right there. And the fact that both of them, you're able to actually read what they're, they can telegraph what they're feeling just without saying it. And that's something that's incredibly rare in actors as young as they are. And so you can have these moments where it's just holding on their faces and you can actually, you, I don't know if it's us projecting onto them or not, (laughs) but it really feels like there's a depth in their performance. It's just, it's honestly rare in adult performances. So so to see it in children is just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's, this is the illustration of show don't tell, right? Like we don't have yeah. enough, a yep. bunch of extra dialogue talking about how hard this is and, you know, <laughs> her going home later and, you know, having a, you know, a monologue overlaying her thoughts and, you know, you don't have any of that. You just, you just have that look on her face and the moments that they share and it's more than enough. Like you get everything. It all comes across. The, the closest they get to that is that the cat, the candy they pick up is a now and later. And so that, that that's <laughs> yes. just like as on the nose as it gets. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And I'm okay with that. I'm totally fine with that. I, I, that. That's kind of when it's in this context, it's actually cute and it works yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to bring up Richard Jenkins because I think he's he's an actor that just 
every time he's in a movie, like when he shows up or a TV show, I think one of the first things I really like, not the first thing I remember seeing, but the first thing I was like, oh, this guy is someone I really need to pay attention to, um, was the TV show Six Feet Under, uh, which he has a small role in, sure. in the beginning yeah. of that show. And then ever since then, anytime he shows up, like, I just, I feel like I'm in good hands. Like, I know that this, even if the movie isn't great, this role is going to be memorable <laughs> and you're going to care and he's going to, and there's going to be heart to it. And that's true here too. And he's, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue in this movie. He doesn't have a lot of moments in this movie. Uh, so much of it is unsaid, just like those moments we talked about between Abby and Owen. Like, this is a movie full of that. I think Richard Jenkins is the perfect actor for those moments. I couldn't agree with you more. And he's one of those guys that, um, he can he has this range that he's I, I we were talking about somebody a couple of weeks ago where and now I'm trying to remember the actor we were talking about. But he has this um sort of his characters all feel somewhat similar. But what he's able to do within that sort of uh, that range is really remarkable. Oh, it was for when we were talking about um, it comes at night. And yes. so, yeah, and I, 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 they have very similar screen presence where he kind of has this feeling of the the distant father, but he can do that in something like Step Brothers, or he can mm -hmm. do that in something like cabin in the woods or, you know, and he just, and it works or six feet under, like you were talking about where the sort of shadow of that performance carries over through the entire seven seasons. It's just yep. really all of those characters are, it's about their relationship they had with their father when he passed away. And it takes somebody really strong to be able to pull that off and carry that weight for that many hours um, and so he's, yeah, I, I'm always happy to see him right. and, and, and bone tomahawk, Jesus Christ. I right. Mean, uh, and there yeah. he's unrecognizable. Yes. Like, it's, even <laughs> yeah. like, I knew he was in that movie going in and I kept looking at that character like, nope, <laughs> that can't, that can't be a thing. Nope. That's not Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we already kind of brought up, uh, Dylan Minnette, um, but it's, it's kind of a chilling performance and I, one thing yeah. i was really glad and this of course is more to do with script than anything else but i'm glad they kind of brought in this kind of cycle of bullying that goes on where sure. it wasn't just like oh well he's just an asshole because plot reasons like we got to see the relationship with his brother and how he's treated like shit and he's he gets picked on and he has just transferred that on to owen he's taken the next weakest person and gone after him and i liked it because that is a part of bullying most 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 kids who bully other kids were bullied themselves so i like that they kind of put that in there and i think that moment um, with Dylan Minnette is actually like weirdly moving. Like for a half second, we feel a tiny bit bad for him. And of course that goes away rather quickly with, with the end <laughs> of this movie. But, but I'm glad that that was there. Well, yeah, they allow, you know, even though he's still clearly the villain here, um, yes. they, they give him humanity and you can see where he's coming from. And there's even a half moment, like second there where, uh, Owen does feel sorry for him where he's smiling at first. And then when he, you know, I'll see you at home or whatever it was. He right. says, you know, you know, that thing. And he kind of stops smiling for a second. And then he catches himself and he, you know, starts to enjoy it again. But he even has that moment where he feels empathy. And this is the guy mm -hmm. that is completely destroying his life. But it's something that's, I think a lesser filmmaker um, would cut away from and not right. allow those extra beats. And that's what really sells this film. And that's what really makes it work. Cause you could probably, cut this film down by you know 15 20 minutes by yeah. cutting out those little moments but it wouldn't have the impact that it does yeah yeah all right so let's 
as as I kind of mentioned the script already, let's move into that. Um, sure. one, one thing that I really like about the opening of this movie is it presents itself in a in some ways like a mystery. You know, we don't know who this guy is who's gone to the hospital. We He scribbles this note that says, I'm sorry, Abby. We don't know who Abby is at this moment. So it's this great setup of like, okay, who is this person who's dying in this hospital bed? Who is Abby? Why is he sorry? Why can't we see this guy's face? And it just sets everything in motion, which is for a movie as kind of uh, as slow as it is, as far as the pacing goes, it actually starts off relatively quickly and kind of sets everything up in like the first five or 10 minutes. Well, and I think that's something that's by design, the because it does have a slow pace to it and you need to have that sort of middle you know, that in the beginning of the movie, just to kind of propel it forward for a little while where that's kind of, that's what grabs the attention of the audience. And you go through these moments, you know, you're building to something. And the fact that it's not the ending of the film, it's actually, you know, the end of the second act is when you get this reveal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of interesting. And it's uh, really smart that that's not the end of the movie. That's not really what this is about. It's just something that's used as a device to kind of invest us. And at that point, when that is revealed, it, you know, it's a nice sort of wrap up to that, but mm-hmm. we don't care about that nearly as much. We're really just invested in these two kids and want to see where they're going. And when you get to what the actual ending of the film is, my God. Yeah, it just right. goes off. Yeah, it, <laughs> it goes off in something that for as small as this film feels, um, this is a really kind of big ending and it has mm-hmm. a much higher um I don't know. It, it it ends on such an up a powerful thing where it's this big set piece that you're not you don't see coming, and right. I think that's one of the most powerful tools it has. Yeah. Another thing I like about this script is there's there's not very many, but there's these moments of absurd humor, kind of mixed in to this movie. There's a sequence where you know our character of Richard Jenkins, like right before all this stuff with the acid comes to fruition, you know he's hiding in the backseat of the car, and that moment when he's discovered, there's they they could have like he gets discovered and he immediately launches into an attack but i love that mm-hmm. they just take a beat of for him to just feel that surprise and you get that oh shit moment from richard jenkins which is all done just through his eyes because his face yeah. is covered but i absolutely love that moment and it comes right before that that car crash moment which is probably like at least visually the most memorable moment of the film but i like that reeves just lets it lets it sit there for a second. It lets us just experience that because it's built up. That tension is built up through that scene as he's like picking up more people and stopping at the gas station and all this stuff is going on. And I love that he just, he lets the film breathe even in that moment of absurdist humor. Well, and there's also, I think probably the other moment that would kind of be the biggest laugh of the movie is probably the boy George thing Yes, in the middle of it. Yes. Um, <laughs> But it doesn't – I mean that's something that would be in an Adam Sandler movie almost. Right. It's that it's that ridiculous. But it still doesn't feel that out of whack. And and that's actually um, Cody McPhee's uh, older brother, the, right. the clerk in the store. Oh, so, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the movie sets itself up nicely to have those moments because the very first kill in this, in this movie, the kill is very uh, – it's very energetic and very dark and very kind of messed up. But – you know, we have him draining the body of blood and then, you know, 
you know, getting interrupted and like spilling the blood and falling down the hill. Like <laughs> yeah. it's set up like this, like, oh man, this, who is this guy? Like, why is he so bad at this? You know, we have this moment at the very, cause that's the first time we really meet him. So it's set up nicely to have these little moments of humor, which in a movie as, as kind of glacially paced as this and the, as dark as this and as brooding as this, I think those moments come as a relief in a lot of ways. Well, that that's the weird thing about rewatching this film mm. is that um, when you first see him spill the blood in that opening kill, um, you have it's a relief, and because you see you know the guy kind of making a mistake and he's not you know skilled at what he's doing, right. but then when you go back and you realize this is a man who's not skilled at what he's doing and he's doing this out of love for this you know he's trying child. to feed her yeah and it, it has a tragedy to it <laughs> yeah and so when you watch it the first time it's funny but then when you go back mm. to it it actually changes and that's something that's really interesting because i had forgotten that that was actually funny the first time because now when i go back and watch it i feel so bad for him right yeah and they also have that later on uh because of that they have that argument that owen hears through the wall uh which i think is interesting that they they still are holding back they're not really showing who's involved in this like you kind of know but they're not bringing the camera into the room as much we're just focused on owen which is a difference i noticed between you know the original version where they just kind of put it in front of you in that moment and show her kind of yelling at the at this old man um so what did you think of that choice to kind of keep that distance and in the same the same way they they keep the name of abby they hold that back for like two or three conversations before you kind of find out who she really is and that she is connected to this note in this hospital? Um, that's actually a good question because it's something where I'm having to go back to that is to go back, you know, <laughs> eight years or right, something like right. that. Nine years. Oh, you can't just pull that up. Come on, man. I thought you were a professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I could lie. Well, <laughs> like me to do that. There you but, go. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I assume that's that mystery part of it is something that you know you're trying to put those pieces together the first time you're watching this and that's what's really great about this film is that that mystery is so secondary that this right. film is utterly rewatchable unlike something like i would say the usual suspects where you have that kind of mystery aspect of it once you know the twist the movies it's diminishing returns mm. every time this there's such a depth to the film that anytime you go back and watch this, you're going to pick up on different ideas, different performance notes, sort of these, you know, uh, layered themes that might be in there that you didn't see the first nine times you watched it. <laughs> right. So it's something that's endlessly rewatchable, at least for me. Sure. What did you think of the only the only thing in the script that I was like, ah, I'm not sure if I'm really buying into that is the the police officer's decision to like break down the door. Uh, and kind of mm. run into this house where he thinks something may be going on and something may not be like just maybe I've seen too many like uh, too many CSI type shows. And I'm like, well, none <laughs> of this, even if you find something, it's not going to matter unless you catch someone in the act doing something terrible. You've just broken into this house with without probable cause just because you heard a squeak at the door. Now you're like just going to jam your foot through the door. And I thought like they, this needs to happen for the plot, but I wasn't sure it made complete sense for that character to do that. It's always strange when you uh, talk about suspension of disbelief and buy-ins with like, movies like what's this. What's the line? <laughs> the vampire <laughs> is fine. No, but it, it's, it's, it, we all have them, though. Yeah. And so mm. we, we establish – and I think you're right in feeling that way because this film is very much rooted in our reality and it feels yeah. very honest and it feels very real and feels like the world that you know existed in 1983. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when you have those sort of moments um, – 
and maybe that's something else. In 1983, there wasn't as much fucking CSI, so oh, you could maybe. kick down the door a little bit easier. <laughs> you know, pe- people were a little bit more, you know, respectable uh, cops in that, <laughs> in, that, in that sense. They had a little, they had a longer leash back then. That's an interesting point. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, move to the production value. The the first thing that I noticed, of course, in this movie is, I mean, I think the production value does a good job of setting the time. Like one of the first things we see is in the hospital, we see Ronald Reagan giving a speech on TV. Yeah. It kind of looks like shit it kind of looks like a photoshopped reagan on a blurry tv but like it doesn't have to be great like you're just like okay it's setting i like the fact that it's setting the time without having to like paste the date on the screen i like when movies just give it to us through context clues instead of like hammering over the head what year this is and how many months later uh but the thing that stands out most to me is the sound of the breathing machines um, for mm. the father's character, like something I noticed as I'm listening to this, like this sounds like a monster. And I thought that was such a interesting choice where you have this guy who, you know, is brought in for something criminal, something horrible has happened to him. And then they strap him to this machine and it just sounds like something out of a out of a horror movie already. And that's just what's keeping him alive. And I really liked the kind of zooming in on that sound effect. Um, yeah, actually. And both of those are kind of key moments for me um one the reagan speech it's the specific speech it's the um the evil empire Mm -hmm. so it's talking about the you know it's very topical right now talking about the you know evil russians and this idea (laughs) of you know not being able to trust the outside world and but we're clearly walking into a film we're being shown a world where there's this evil that's within us and show it kind of it's calling bullshit in a way, I think that opening moment, and it's kind of interesting that, you know, that there is this, you know, you need to open your eyes and kind of look at the world that you live in, as opposed to focusing on the outside. I assume that's what that's going for. Sure. Um, in that moment is what it feels like. And then with the breathing machines and with this sort of, you know, giving it that inhuman, but mm-hmm. not quite machine sound. Right. So it has this, uh, very, very, um, impactful and, I don't know. It's unnerving to hear that. And so, yeah, I think that overall the, what they're working with here, the amount of thought that goes into this, you can tell these were decisions that weren't made just sort of, okay, that, that looks fine. Let's go with that. Right. Um, that it is, it's doing a service to the story, but not calling attention to itself that it feels like, you know, you know, when you see period pieces, a lot of the times it's calling attention to how look at the fucking budget we had to go get these dresses <laughs> or we right. had to get this, you know, all these cars for, you know, 1943. And, you know, look at this. This is something else where they're not doing a lot. And that's what makes it feel, I think, much more honest in that way. You know, the, the closest yeah. they come to that is the boy George and the Rubik's Cube. Sure. where They really call attention to it themselves. But even there, it doesn't feel that out of you know left field because when i originally was watching this the swedish version of this mm-hmm. i had as far as establishing the timeline of it i was thinking well this is sweden are these just like ikea kids is this right. what they dress like <laughs> right now <laughs> right so, how would i know <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think you bring up a great point though in these movies that are production designed to within an inch of their lives. Like it starts, even if maybe by some miracle, they have recreated exactly what it was like in <laughs> 1942 in Detroit. Like one, I would never know. And it just looks too perfect. 
and I I can't I can't get into the film. Whereas this, like you mentioned earlier, it's like rooted in reality, even though it's a vampire story, it still feels real. And I think they did kind of just enough. The other thing I really liked is is the score of this movie, and that's something I usually don't notice in movies. I'm not like a big yeah. score person, but it it's it hits that balance just right where there are ominous moments of music in this film, but it never overpowers the scene. The focus is still on the people involved, but it does do a great job of setting the right mood at the right moments. There's, you know, and there's a lot of stuff in the production that um, production design that I actually didn't even notice till I was paying attention to it for this particular podcast. So I started kind of looking at some stuff in the background. And Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things is something they never even make mention of, but in the dining room of uh, Owen's apartment, there's this hutch that was clearly in the house when they had a larger house. And so if you were buying that for an apartment, you never would have bought this huge piece of furniture. And I've had, you know, friends and, you know, family members that have gone through sort of rougher patches and they've had to downsize and they have these Mm -hmm. objects in their homes that clearly don't fit anymore. Right. And they're hanging on to it. And it's just kind of, it's those little touches that just really, I think make it work and you don't even Mm -hmm. notice it, but it's there. And so it gives that, and it's telling this whole other story and it's just really a well thought out film. Yeah. And you can even connect it. Like there was something I noticed and I was thinking of it as a negative, but now that you brought that up, it kind of made me rethink it. There's a scene early in the movie where, where Owen is putting on a shirt and it's a specific brand. It's a Lacoste shirt Mm -hmm. and it's got, you know, the gator on it. And I thought like, well, that's weird that this kid who's like in a single parent home would have this really expensive piece of clothing. But now that you bring that up, that's probably something that he had when his parents were still together and things were going much better. So it does more again to kind of, to kind of let us know not only what's going on now, but what has gone on before the movie started. And if you notice, the shirt doesn't fit perfectly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that could be something. Is it a second hand or is it just something where they're hanging on to it from, you know, better days? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also was really impressed uh, with with some of the makeup in this movie, the scene with the acid and the scene where yeah. one of my favorite scenes where she enters his room without permission. He like says like, well, what happens if, if I don't let you in? And then she kind of shows him what happens and the kind of like the, the flesh eating away and the blood. I mean, it's just, it's really disturbing. And a lot of it mm-hmm. is disturbing, not just because of the makeup, but because you have this kind of like angelic, like kind of beautiful young face, like being destroyed in front of your eyes. And it's just, it's really a shocking moment and something you don't see in most vampire movies. Most vampire movies, you just, well, it's like a hidden invisible wall. And I like that they did something a little different with actually letting her enter, but then it, you know, it killing her if he would not like kind of release that. Well, one of the biggest jumps for me in the film um, from a kind of makeup point of view also is the hockey stick scene. And mm. it's, you know, the initial impact where it hits much harder oh, than yeah. you're expecting it to. And then when it cuts down and there's just that little sliver Ugh. in his ear that's gone. And it's just something that's it carries so much weight. And there, it's by far out of all the violence in the movie, one of the least violent yeah, <laughs> moments it's minimal. in the movie. Yeah. But it carries a ton of weight. And it's one that gets me every time. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. All right. So let's move to our favorite scene. So are there any favorite scenes that we haven't mentioned or ones that you want to talk more about? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, clearly my favorite scene in the film because I've just, you know, chomping at the bit to talk about the <laughs> sort of 360 shot of uh. Rich, Richard Jenkins' car as it, you know, spins over and then it starts tumbling down this hill. And the way that it's, you know, I guess the camera is mounted to the outside of the vehicle and the way that you're seeing it from his point of view, you know, even How did that camera survive? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. I don't, I don't know what they did. And you're kind of confused as to what exactly pushed him off the edge right. there. Um, but it's you are, it's all from his point of view. So you don't see it. And that's what makes it so jarring and so effective. And my God, it's just one of those things that you can, that that's film school in a shot right there. You can yeah. go back and watch <laughs> right. that a hundred times dissecting it and trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And I, that's one of my favorite, uh, that, that's one of my favorite scenes in a lot of films, not just this one, right. but something outside <laughs> of that, I would say, um, that we haven't talked about, you know, the ending of the film is really powerful here. Mm. Uh, it's something where it, you mean with it, her being transported, like the kind yes. of happy ending. Yeah. Which shocked me by the way, I did not see this. Like it almost feels like a, a light romantic comedy ending, but of course there's a vampire. So she has to be away from sunlight. But I was like, huh, I did not expect this to go this way. It feels like a movie that's going to have a bittersweet ending. And it's earned though. Yeah. It's oh not yeah. Something, I, it I think if you, if you put that ending on a movie that didn't build the way it built, it would have felt false. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's, it's one of those things where if it was on a lesser film, you would have been very dismissive of that. But at this yes. point you want them to have just anything that would be, you know, a relief. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only other scene I wanted to bring up is the scene at the swimming pool, um, of course. which yeah. I, I really love because I, you know, the whole movie, I think as viewers, we are waiting for her to get unleashed on these bullies, right? This is her only friend. He is being tormented every day. This is like this. You're just waiting for it, the whole movie. And I started to think like, man, maybe it's not going to happen. Like maybe we're just never going to get that moment where we get to kind of revel in this, in, in her power. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm glad it happened. And I'm also glad they held it back for so long because it was even more satisfying, even though you do feel a little bit torn about uh, about Dylan Minnette's character because you're just, you know, he has that one moment. He was also, you know, he, he lost a piece of his ear like there's there's some bad stuff going on for him, <laughs> too. And I think it's also very cleverly shot that you don't yeah. really see it. You just see things going by in the water and, you know, the bodies afterwards. But and and again, you have this kind of repeated thing of her showing up barefoot, which you have that moment again when he first comes up above water again. You just see her bare feet, which is kind of the first way he was introduced to her when she's walking in the snow in bare feet. So I thought that all kind of came full circle really nicely. Yeah. And it's um, I, I think the buildup is what makes that work. Um, you're right in that. It's not yeah. unlike Boogie Nights, where by the end of it, you just want to see that dick. Yeah. And so come on, we've been talking about it for four hours. Can we just and see so it? with this, you just want to see her unleash this power. You want to see her uh, and <clears throat> it doesn't have that, you know, kind of ugly side that you would expect it to right. where, you know, there's this feeling of remorse for doing it. In fact, or disgust from it, him. Like you don't yeah, get any it, of that. It's, you're just watching it going, God damn it. I wish I had a friend like that when right? I was a kid. <laughs> Jeez, that would have made school a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, and, and it's just something where I think that, it, again, if the if it was handled wrong and 
oddly enough, um, did you start thinking about It Follows when you were watching oh, that? Oh, definitely. Okay, <laughs> Especially because, that, because that was... I had seen It Follows before this. Like, that is, if you're talking about, like, horror sequences that happen in a swimming pool, that's where my brain is going to go to right away. And that's one of the things that, uh, out of It Follows, one of the only downsides was I saw this scene first. Right, and right. And so it felt like, no, they got it right before, and this is a lesser version of that. Sure, but, I can see you know, that. But, but, I mean, it's still not a bad sequence in right. It Follows, but my God, I think this is just – and it's so bizarre because in both films, they really nail this portion, this thing, yeah. and they, they kind of handle it differently. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, so, I mean, before we move on to theme, I, you know, it's been a lot of love for this movie, which makes me really happy because whenever I watch, I mean, we've experienced this on the show with you as a guest before. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, I wanted to see that movie. And then it's blindness. Uh, and it's <laughs> terrible. Uh, but in this case, it was like, oh, good. I'm so glad that I put this on the schedule and that I got to watch this. So, I mean, even if you've listened to this whole episode and you haven't seen it before and we've spoiled some things, like, I don't think it really spoils it because so much of it yeah. is about the mood of the film and the look of the film. And it, you know, I think it's definitely worth watching. Like, I, I really enjoyed my time with it. So I'm glad that we got to do this episode. Well, it's, it'd honestly be like spoiling my dinner with Andre. Um, <laughs> so they talk and they talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's, it's, that's not what this is about. I mean, right. this is. I mean, granted, My Dinner with Andre, very different execution because that's a talky-ass movie. Um, here, very limited dialogue. Yes. But you can <laughs> go over all the beats without you know, really lessening the emotional impact, I think. Right. I like that we've mentioned uh, It Follows, <laughs> Boogie Nights, and My Dinner with Andre. That is uh, – there's a <laughs> lot going on there. That's good. Yeah, uh, for me, there is. Yes. All right. So let's talk about the theme. So the theme is inadequacy. So how do you think this played out uh, in, Let, in Let Me In? Well, actually, I'm curious to hear your thought on that because I, it's there, but mm -hmm. it's not the first thing I would have thought of when I was thinking about this film. So you come up with these themes okay. after you watch the movie. And so I'm wondering what inspired you to actually choose inadequacy as the theme for this film. Okay, so before I answer that, what first came to your mind as a theme? Um, for this, yeah. it would be – you know, I, I would think of – kind of coming from a psychological point of view, I, it's, mm, man, I, I would have to kind of think about that a little bit more because it's obviously just this coming of age story. Sure. And so, you know, the idea of uh, your first love mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what I would come up with on it, right. but I would need to actually sit down and think about it a little bit more, but it was honestly something where that is a part of this movie. Um, but I don't see it as the overall because mm. it's something where <clears throat> I think we clearly have a character who our protagonist has that something that he's struggling with. Mm -hmm. And but I don't see it in a lot of the other characters here as okay. much. So let me let me see if I can convince you because okay. I, I feel like it's in pretty much all of the major characters. So we have especially on that date, um, we we have uh, we have Abby who feels inadequate because of what she is like. She can't, mm. she can't be a quote unquote normal girl. She can't just be a 12 year old girl. Owen, I think it's pretty obvious his inadequacy, especially the way he's treated at school, the way his family sure. situation. I mean, I think that's the, the most obvious one, but even Richard Jenkins, 
like talking about kind of how he's failing as he's getting older and wondering, like, am I failing on purpose or am I just getting old? And him not being able to really connect as much with her anymore. So I think he feels inadequate because he is, quote unquote, just just a human and he can't he can't be what she is. And our, our bully is inadequate, too. And I think we see that with his relationship with his brother. Like he kind of cowers in front of him and doesn't feel good enough. So in order to combat that, he moves towards kind of attacking other people. So I feel like inadequacy is a strain throughout pretty much every character in this movie. I think maybe even minimally with this policeman who can't seem to get this job done and find out what's going on. I think he feels inadequate, too. I think that it's anytime you have a character that's going to be rooted in actual humanity, there's going to be a level of inadequacy because you're going to show their flaws and you're going to show their shortcomings. Um, And so with Richard Jenkins, I had a slightly different read on the character where I don't feel that he feels lesser than Um, I think he feels sorry for her that he worries about what's going to happen when he's gone because he can feel, you know, he's missed a step. He's, you know, not the guy that he was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that there's not going to be somebody to provide for her. And that eventually, you know, she's going to have to fend for herself. And he knows that she's still this little girl that can't quite do it. And I think that there's a sense that he really does feel sorry for her. And I think that's where that's coming from. I, I, I think it's also interesting, though, that I I think you're right in a lot of ways, I think, especially with him, like wanting to take care of her and be be there for her. But he also doesn't allow her to connect with anyone else. He's consistently trying to hold her back. So, like, does he worry about her? Yes. But is he allowing for other people to step in for her to make friends for her to make connections he's not allowing that either and i wonder how much of that is rooted in inadequacy and jealousy because when he met her he was probably a lot like owen and now owen has kind of swept in in a lot of ways and is almost replacing him at playing kind of a different role than he is now as this older man well i think that's going to be something that happens in a movie like this because it's Mm -hmm. not clearly laid out for you And so I think that you can tell a lot about the person that's viewing the film by how they react to that relationship, um, Mm -hmm. where I think it's absolutely valid to see that as jealousy, but I never saw it as jealousy from him. I I honestly feel like when he is looking at that situation, he's scared of the outside world for her. Yeah, he's he's very protective. Yeah. And I I think that that's coming – that they won't understand what she is and they will just destroy her because, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll see her as a monster. And so, and he has deep affection for her. And, you know, I, I honestly think that that's not him falling short, but just that there's a tragedy to it, that there's an inevitability. There's something that he can't change the course of what's right. going to happen. He's tried to steer away from it, but it's kind of, you know, it's like being in any damaged relationship that you know that it's going to eventually go south and fall apart. It's just a question of when will that day happen? And they've had this long history where we meet them in the middle of their bitterness. We meet them where they're at the end of this road. So it's kind of hard to see the tenderness between the two of them. And so I I think that that's coming from a place of they're just at the end of this relationship. So I, I, and I think that that's, you know, something where the, I think you're right in the, the bully and in Owen, Mm -hmm. their inadequacies are very clearly laid out, but I don't, I don't even see it as much in Abby where, um, I think that she sees 
an opportunity in Owen where she sees something where she can feel like a 12 year old girl again. She's not, you know, playing the role of this bitter housewife to the father character anymore, where she sees the ability to kind of feel like herself again and Mm. she's alive again and she's learning how to smile again. And that's what she sees in him. It's just, I think that when she's looking at him, she's kind of getting off on how it makes her feel. And I don't think that she feels intimidated or lesser than by him or in awe of him in any way. Um, I think that there's just, you know, she just genuinely cares for him. And Mm so I, I, but I think that she feels deserving of him as well. I don't think there's where, you know, there's not a reverence that she holds for him where it's, she doesn't feel like she deserves him. No, I don't feel like, I don't feel like she feels like she's inadequate in comparison to him. I just feel like she remembers what she used to be before this kind yeah. of new life for her started and feels this, it's almost wistful. Like this idea, like even her showing up and saying, we can't be friends. It's like, it's an interesting little tease because you know, this being a movie and the narrative structure as it is, these two are going to be friends and connect, but she's still attempting at that moment. She's kind of tempting fate. Like she, she knows she should probably keep her distance, but she wants something more and she wants that connection. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can see that 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 is something that there's clearly she hasn't had a connection like that, and she how long has she been alone? Yeah. You know, and she needs something desperate, and you know, she sees a kindred spirit in him. She sees somebody who is just utterly alone, and that's not something that you see in a lot of twelve year olds, right? You know, and so she sees somebody that she can relate to that, you know, there's a kid that's carrying a lot of pain and, you know, 12 year olds, you're feeling a lot of things for the first time. And so as adults, yeah. I think we for, we forget what it's like to carry that weight of the world. And I think that's what's so powerful about this movie is that it reminds you of what it was like to have that moment, to have those feelings for the first time, to first feel love and first feel pain and, you know, first feel fear, you know, you're going out right. outside of, you know, your parents' protection and these, you know, Owen, he clearly had a better life at one point. Now he's kind of fending for himself. He's a latchkey kid now and he's right. in this not so safe world. And I think that there's, I think that's more of the dynamic for the two of them. Sure. All right. Great. All right, uh, so that's it um, for the episode on Let Me In. Uh, The last thing we have to talk about is whether you're looking forward to the war for the Planet of the Apes or not. Not really. (laughs) I had a feeling you would have that reaction. (laughs) Uh, I think in a lot of ways these movies have been deemed the quote-unquote thinking person's blockbuster. I think there is, you know, a little bit more to them than there is to your kind of standard summer blockbuster. I've liked the first two movies. I actually just rewatched them because it mm-hmm. had been a long time and I was, I'm going to see the new one. So I was like, oh, what happened at the end of the last one? Let me kind of refresh my memory. And they are actually much better than I remember them being. I remember them being like kind of okay. That was enjoyable. But I, re- I, and I think Andy Serkis gives, of course, like these great motion capture performances that, really should be recognized, uh, you know, with these kind of award ceremonies, which it never will because it's, you know, they Did, wasn't it, he nominated for no, Caesar? he wasn't. There was a big push, I think, for him to be nominated. And people were again, let down that he okay. wasn't nominated. And I feel like he should be like, he's doing all the acting. It's not as if he's just in a recording booth with a microphone, like he's doing all the physicality too. like, I would be fine with him getting nominated. And I think he's incredible in these movies. And I look forward to kind of 
this wrapping up. I think there's a danger in movies like this. And if you watch the old Planet of the Apes, you will know that this danger does does actually happen where you just go on way too long. Uh, you have like seven movies. I think trilogy is a nice way to do it. And I, from what I hear, it seems to wrap up this trilogy really well. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, I, I think you kind of nailed my thoughts on these movies um, where you said you're, you're a big fan of these films and you couldn't remember exactly what happened in them. <laughs> yeah, and th- there's a, I mean, th- th- they're well made, and, right. but they're pretty damn disposable where I'm like, wait, wasn't John Lithgow in one of these things yes, at some point? And, and so there was the – And was very good. <laughs> Yeah, it it was cute. I mean, I remember the ending kind of retconned into the original one. And so it was like, oh, look at that. Very oh, that's clever. fun. That's yes, neat. Yes. And so, but after that, it's, you know, it's cotton candy. It's empty calories. And I mean, it's fine. They're fun. Mm-hmm. But there's something in Let Me In that I think actually has real depth to it where, you know, I could go six, seven years without seeing this film and I'll have a really good idea of what happened here. And I'll be able to recall some of maybe not my initial, like I was talking about before emotional reaction to specific scenes and what I was thinking about in that moment, but I'll, I'll know the bigger plot movements of it with, I've seen both of the apes movies and the second one that a lot of people say is better. I I don't remember a damn thing about Mm. that movie. Honestly, I I remember something about a turret, like a gun turret that he swings (laughs) on. And that's about it. It does happen. Yeah. I feel like, uh, Matt Reeves is for you as Ryan Coogler is to me. Like I, (laughs) I remember when hearing like he was joining, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe, I was like, I'm sure it'll be great, but I just want him to do his own thing, his own ideas. Like I think he does great work and I'd rather not have him as a part of this machine. But you know, here we are with war for planet of the apes for Matt Reeves and black Panther for Ryan Coogler. And that is kind of the state of things right now is that if you make even one or two, I mean, sometimes like, movies don't even have to be good. They just have to be recognized <laughs> as not a piece of shit and you happen to be a white guy and then you'll get a really big movie to kind of, you know, launch your career. But it does make me hope that directors like Matt Reeves will collect their big checks, like do your Planet of the Apes, do your couple Batman movies and then go and then count your money and then go do like what you want to do. Go do your own ideas. Go do movies like this. And I hope I hope because I think sometimes with this kind of franchise filmmaking, I hope we're not losing voices. That would have been there. I, no, because I, I think if Matt Reeves wanted to do something smaller, he would have no problem finding funding for oh, you know, yeah, little $10 million dollar movies, $5 million dollar movies. Um, but I could see how big budget filmmaking would be alluring, too. Sure. So. Yeah, I mean, dude, he has uh, every right to do whatever he yes. wants to. If this is the stuff that he enjoys and he feels like this is what he's best suited to do, more power to him. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he got a great one in. So whatever it's he true. wants to do with the rest of his career, good on him. I, I don't care. Um, yeah, I, I understand that I'm in the vast minority. Um, <laughs> when I hear people talk about, you know, somebody – they they need to get a certain caliber of director for the next X-Men movie because it needs do to they? be. And, I, and my thought is kind of like, why don't you just get a guy that made some pretty music videos to do it? And, that, and that's it. You know, get the to be fair. That that's have... David Fincher, though. <laughs> yeah, but he's doing a fucking World War Z sequel for it's his next true. movie. That's true. You never know where these careers will go. Like if you had told me five years ago that David Fincher would be doing World War Z 2 or whatever it's going to be called, uh, I would not have believed that. But. Here we are. This is the world we live in. So, I, you know, he, he must be just a good friend. You know, Brad, yeah, Brad Pitt's like, dude, goes, I need a little help. <laughs> he's like, hey, you know, that, that Buttons movie, you owe me, motherfucker. 
I really hope that that is how that conversation went. I will not hear any other version of that story. That is the best. All right. The, the only thing is there would have been lip smacking while he was eating something on well, the phone. Yeah, he, does, he does like to do that in his movies. That is for sure. All right. Uh, so that's it for this episode. So um, I highly suggest you follow uh, Chris on Twitter and listen to his podcast, uh, the following films podcast, which is also the name of our network. So, you know, it's important. Uh, if people were to listen right now, what would be the latest thing they would find on the following films podcast? Dear God, I, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think for a second. What was <laughs> I'm going to have to actually. I've just looked at uh, our joint website and it looks like the last thing you posted was an interview with director Trevor White, uh, who directed a crooked somebody. It's a great film, by the way. Um, that that, that that was kind of one of those things where I had had these back-to-back where I did the Leah Thompson interview we talked about before, and then I had a writer from The Simpsons. So I was like, that's a good way to end. It's a good way to good. go out. I, yes. I just feel good about that. And then I was doing LA Film Festival coverage, and I saw this at Crooked Somebody. And I was absolutely floored by the movie and the opportunity to interview. The director came up and fuck yes, absolutely. This right. is a I, I, it's one of those ones where I came out. I had some questions and I wanted to talk to him about it. And so that's kind of how I'm taking it from here on in. It might not be consistent week to week or might go down to once a month and it might be three in a week, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what happens. Uh, I'm going into Fantasia coverage right now again. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of opportunities there. And if something really strikes me, then yeah, I'll, I'll be doing it again. But unfortunately when it's in festival time, it ends up being a lot of shit you can't see right away. So it's probably not going to be good for me. (laughs) That's very true. All right. One more time, uh, Chris, thank you so much uh, for being here for this episode. Thanks for having me on. everyone thank you for joining me for another episode of pop culture case study so there's lots of ways to get involved the easiest way probably is to tell your friends about the show or you can follow me on twitter and interact that's at pc case study what i would really like though is to get some emails some of your takes on the movies we talk about and things you liked or didn't like about the show so you can email me with anything at pop culture case study at gmail.com Also, you can go to our network's webpage, followingfilms.com, and check out other great podcasts like the Following Films podcast and War Machine vs. Warhorse. And if you have some extra money and want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate on a per-episode basis and get some pretty cool rewards. Alright, so the next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review of The War for the Planet of the Apes. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. No, no, fuck all those conversations. Stop. Get over yourself. 